Welcome back to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. I am Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. The Ontario provincial election is coming down to its final days. Polling seems to show a collapse of the Liberal vote. The Conservatives, under last-minute replacement leader Doug Ford, have stalled after a strong start. And right now the polls seem to show the Conservatives forming a majority government, but no one is guaranteeing that result as we speak at this moment. Ford's no-frills strategy has been to say little to the press and offer nothing to be criticized. The NDP, under Andrea Horvath, meanwhile, have announced ambitious plans to expand the government even further. The Liberal media has already started lamenting the departure of Premier Kathleen Wynne, whose party is threatened with being wiped out uh, as a party status in Ontario. Under the 15-year Liberal government, Ontario has acquired the largest debt of any non-sovereign state in the world, and it now takes in well over a billion dollars a year in equalization payments from its Western partners. Nobody knows Ontario politics better than my good friend Steve Pakin, the longtime host of The Agenda on TV Ontario and the author of a number of excellent books on Ontario premiers you must read. Uh, he joins us now on The Full Count to talk about how we got here and where it's going in the most populous and powerful province in the country. Welcome back, Steve. Great to be with you, Bruce. How you doing? I am good. I am good. So you moderated the debate. You were in the room. You felt the dynamic, etc., Give me the headline on where we stand with just days to go. Uh, if you want to come out of the leaders' debate, I think the headline would have been Premier Kathleen Wynne wins leaders' debate, but it doesn't affect the campaign dynamic at all. Bruce, her problem was going into this election campaign, fully 81% of people surveyed said it was time for a change. You don't come back from a number like that. It's just been too overwhelming all the way through. They have tried absolutely everything the Liberals have to try to change the channel, to rebrand the premier, to try to reintroduce her to people using some different policy ideas, some different approaches on issues. Nothing has worked yet. Uh, the fact of the matter is, unless something dramatic happens in the dying days of this campaign, she is uh, headed towards leading the Liberal Party to its worst defeat ever in Ontario history. Uh, you know, there's always a range on these things. The range I've seen is that the Liberals could go from some, wherever they are right now, I think it's 50-some-odd seats, to one or two at the low end, and maybe if they're lucky, uh, a half a dozen or seven on the high end. But any way you look at it, it is looking like a night of just a pure debacle yeah. for the Ontario Liberals. Yeah. What's, what's official party status? How many seats? It's 12 in Ontario, but remember, that's, that's, you know, that didn't come down from Mount Sinai. Uh, that is a that is a level that the Ontario legislature itself decides. Uh, Eleven years ago, we had an election where the NDP came back with, I think, seven or eight seats, which was not official party status. But there was sort of a sense in the legislature that, uh, you know, it would it would have been not good sporting uh, to deny the party official party status. And so uh, literally the in that case, the Dalton McGuinty liberal government uh, changed the policy and allowed the NDP's whatever it was, seven or eight seats to constitute official party status. You can do that if it gets a little bit below 12. If you're at one or two, that's a tough one. Yeah. And if somebody's vindictive on the other side, too, of course, they, oh, they, they can also do that. I, I noticed in the last couple of days, we've seen uh, uh, the, the Conservative Party basically reversing the old equation. It used to be a, a vote for the NDP it was a vote for the Liberals. Now it's a vote for the Liberals. It's a vote for the NDP. <laughs> how, how things have changed in your province. 
Well, indeed. And, and you know, the, I think the way the thing is going to be framed in the dying days of the campaign is like this. Andrea Horvath, who is the leader of the New Democratic Party, this is her third general election as the leader, she's basically saying, who do you want to be your premier? We know it's not going to be Kathleen Wynne. Do you want me, someone who's been around the legislature for a long time, uh, party leader through my third election now, nine years, uh, or do you want Doug Ford, who basically is a Johnny-come-lately on the scene? He only got the leadership a few months ago. Uh, he knows virtually nothing about provincial politics. He has, you know, he knows something about retail politics because uh, his party's, in, you know, very competitive in the polls. Um, but he really doesn't know much about provincial politics. Uh, one of the more famous moments on the campaign, Bruce, was when a reporter asked him, Mr. Ford, can you tell us how a bill becomes law? And he really couldn't. Uh, you know, first reading, second reading, third reading, royal assent probably would have been a good enough answer, but he really couldn't come up with anything. Um, so Andrew Horvath has framed this question in the dying days as, who do you want to be your premier? Doug Ford, understanding that he's vulnerable on that question, has tried to recast the question in a way that's more favorable to him, which is, what group of members of the legislature do you want running the government of Ontario uh, after Election Day? And on that score, Ford wins because while he may be inferior in experience and other things to Horvath, uh, his team around him is certainly much superior to the team around Horvath. Mm -hmm. These are people who've got lots of experience in the private sector. These are people who have experience in the legislature. Um, you know, I think mo a lot of the candidates for the NDP have got attention in this election campaign for all the wrong reasons, uh, many of them because of silly things they tweeted out in the past, that kind of thing. Um, the conservatives, Ford actually held a press conference the other day where he was surrounded by about 10 or 15 uh, candidates, uh, all of whom could potentially constitute a pretty solid cabinet. Yeah. So that's that's how the question is being framed in the dying days. It's interesting that this is a campaign. I like to say it's a campaign that's haunted by a couple of ghosts. And if, if, if Kathleen Wynne was in any position to exploit it, she would have some fertile ground. And here's what I mean by ghosts. You mentioned both of the other leaders. Let's talk about Ford, first of all. Is it possible for someone who who purports to be a small-C conservative to escape the shadow, the ghost of Mike Harris in Ontario? He's not got just that one ghost, actually, Bruce. He's got two ghosts. Uh, yes, indeed, the specter of Mike Harris, who was Premier of Ontario from 1995 to 2002 and who was a significant agent of change, Conservatives to this day still see him as a hero and love him. Uh, people on the progressive side of the political spectrum uh, still see him as a terrible bogeyman. Uh, Kathleen Wynne frequently tells the story about how she got into provincial politics in the first case, uh, or actually local politics before that at the school board, because she wanted to fight against a lot of the educational changes that Mike Harris was bringing in. But he's not the only bogeyman in this campaign. Of course, Doug Ford's late brother, Rob Ford, probably the most famous mayor in the world for a little while when he was mayor of Toronto, uh, he, he is another concern. And there are lots of people in the city of Toronto, in particular, who remember the chaos of Rob Ford's administration. And for that reason, while they might be inclined to want to change at Queen's Park and might be inclined to vote progressive conservative, are concerned about voting Tory because they don't want the chaos of those years to return. Mm. So two kind of ghosts, if you like. But before we get back to the ghost, you brought up his brother. For people who didn't live in Ontario and Toronto at the time, contrast the two brothers. Well, it's funny, you know, or funny is the wrong word, but let me put it this way. Rob Ford was a man of, of um, 
he had great connection with the average person in Toronto. People loved him. And, you know, he, he had an ability to connect with the average person in a way that you just don't see in politics very frequently. It was really quite something. And he made that connection through 10 years on city council and returning people's phone calls and getting good service for his constituents. And that made him famous. Now, what we didn't know at the same time was that he had terrible personal uh, addict addiction problems. He had a drug addiction. He had an alcohol addiction. And at the end of the day, uh, he could control neither and eventually succumb to cancer. I think a lot of what made Doug Ford, who was on city council for part of Rob Ford's term as mayor, I, I think what made Doug Ford uh, a problematic person at that time was that he, as, as the older brother, constantly felt a, a need to defend his younger brother's problems. And that was really a very toxic combination. It's a sad thing to say, but since Rob Ford died a few years ago, Doug has actually become a different guy. He's a little more mellow around the edges. He is less of a bull in a china shop. Uh, I wouldn't say that he knows a heck of a lot more about sort of the <laughs> policy side of politics, yes. but he certainly has developed his brother's skills to connect with Mr. and Mrs. Everyday Ontario. And that's one of the reasons that despite being the leader of the PC party for only a few months, uh, he still got them within spitting distance of a majority government. Was he helped in some way by coming to this later? Uh, and, and the reason I ask that is that uh, uh, it's no secret that a lot of people want to pick away at him, uh, and they've had a shorter opportunity to do so. So in some ways, was coming to the job after replacing uh, Patrick Brown an advantage for him? Well, just, yeah, and maybe just uh, 30 seconds of background here. Uh, it was on January 24th that CTV reported uh, in, in what turns out to be a report of... Um, well, which had some holes in it. Let's put it that way. Some there, there were some mistakes in the report. But in any event, the report went on television uh, that Patrick Brown was guilty of sexual misconduct 10 years ago while he was still the MP for Barry. Um, and a conference call held by the PC caucus that night basically overthrew him. They told him he had to resign, and he did. Uh, the PC party then basically took eight weeks to do what it normally takes eight months to do, and that is have a leadership contest to replace Patrick Brown. Uh, Doug Ford, despite getting fewer votes than his chief opponent and winning fewer ridings than his chief opponent, still managed to win on points. The rules of the convention are such that it's not a delegated convention. It was a points convention, and he got more points. And so he literally got thrust with almost no time to go uh, into uh, an election campaign where he basically said, the old platform under Patrick Brown is out. We're bringing in a new platform. Uh, there's not enough time for all the candidates to run in nomination meetings, so I'm going to appoint a bunch of you to your nominations. So needless to say, he favored a lot of his friends and, and those who were supportive to him as opposed to others. And then we're right into the election campaign, and he's sort of been uh, drip by drip bringing out um, you know pieces of a platform, but frankly nothing close to what you would consider a fully costed financial document. And he's getting a lot of heat from not just from opponents, but from some conservatives as well, uh, because he's only announced his spending plans, but he hasn't given anybody any indication on how he plans to raise the money to pay for all his promises, which, if memory serves, are up around $10 billion right now. Yeah. Bruce, that's the funny thing about this election campaign. There's almost no conservative party running in this election campaign. You've got you know, two parties, basically the, you know, the liberals and the NDP, who are promising to outspend each other on the left, and you've got Doug Ford on the right, also promising some massive spending, 
while at the same time promising not to lay any public servants off and cut taxes massively. Uh, I'm not sure anybody's math adds up in this election campaign. Yeah, it, but it, but as you said off the beginning, this is not a uh, a campaign that is decided by debating points. It's not really a campaign decided by the kind of things you were just talking about in terms of, of balancing budgets. This is Very an cool. emotional uh, kind of uh, of campaign. Uh, just just not to digress too much, but could you have seen ways in which Rob Ford would have handled this differently that that would have helped Doug? Uh, not sure I follow you. What do you mean? Well, you know, their styles are a little bit different. And, and, and you're just talking about uh, you know, Rob's connection to people on, a, on an everyday basis. I'm just wondering if Rob had been the guy who'd been thrust into this job, etc. Could you have seen him doing things differently than his brother would have done? And that would have been maybe more advantageous for the party? Actually not. They're both the same kind of conservative. And by that, I mean, they are populist conservatives. They actually aren't you know, small c, what you might consider to be Alberta conservatives, if you like. They're not, you know, right wing, dramatically right wing economic conservatives. Um, you know, a lot of their policies are, are, you know, the tax cutting, of course, is very conservative. But there's some very progressive policies that that uh, Doug Ford is running on as well. Uh, you know, he's offering uh, big tax subsidies for uh, people who want to put their kids into child care. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, you know, uh, of course, the uh, the personal income tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts, the end of cap and trade plan, um, no carbon tax, you know, all of that is right out of the conservative playbook. Um, but there are some other policy items in there, massive spending on on um, uh, public transit, uh, a promise not to lay off or fire any public servants. I mean, that's a long way away from Mike Harris, yeah. who came into office in 1995, swearing to reduce the size of the civil service by 20,000 people, and did. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's amazing to conservatives hearing him say that he's not going to fire anybody because one of the main reasons they want him is, is to fire people. That's one of, it, the, other, yeah. the other comparison is this isn't the ghost part. I'll get to my second ghost in a second. But the other mm -hmm. person who sort of hovers over this election, at least in terms of Ford and the conservatives, is Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump similarly is not a conservative. He is a populist. He's got a mix of different policies, et cetera. Uh, and, and there have been comparisons made between the two. How valid are they? Yeah, I don't really like the comparisons too much, I have to tell you. I mean, there's an obvious superficial comparison of both of these men um, are populists. Both of these men uh, inherited their father's businesses and improved upon them. Uh, both of these men, uh, you know, don't really play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules in politics. Uh, they're tough customers, uh, bullies at times. Yes, uh, I think that's probably a fair statement. Uh, but on the other hand, Donald Trump is very much into demonizing the other. And you, you just don't hear Doug Ford do that. Doug Ford is not interested in picking fights with any ethnic group in the way that Donald Trump goes after Mexicans or Donald Trump goes after Muslims or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, in fact, a big part of what Doug Ford likes to call Ford Nation, which is his populist constituency, are, are ethnic people. Um, it's interesting. I had a I had an Uber drive today. I went to a uh, Andrew Horvath campaign event this morning, and then took an Uber back to uh, the TV station. And the guy driving the Uber, he was not a citizen. He was from Nigeria, uh, not a citizen yet, so he couldn't vote. But he said, if I could vote, I'd vote for Doug Ford. Um, you know, that's um, that's different. So uh, unlike Trump, Ford is not about demonizing the other. And I think that's part of what drives liberals crazy. It's one of the reasons he's so difficult to run against. 
uh, because the, 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 the sort of Hillary Clinton anti-Trump playbook really doesn't work here because a lot of it's just not applicable. Mm. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is uh, author and analyst Steve Pakin, the award-winning host of The Agenda on TV Ontario. Okay, I promised a second ghost. Let's, <laughs> let's open the closet and find out who I'm talking about. Now, Andrea Horvath has been very specific on where she wants to spend her money. This reminds a lot of people in Ontario of, here's our second ghost, Bob Ray, his government in 1990. Can she get out from under that shadow? Yeah, I think she can. I mean, there's keep in mind, Bob Ray got elected 28 years ago. Uh, how many people are going to vote in this election who've never heard of Bob Ray? Some. How many are going to vote who weren't even alive when Bob Ray was the, was the premier? Some. Uh, how many people, uh, including Andrea Horvath, have noted that Bob Ray is actually not even a new Democrat anymore? He's a liberal. Yep. Um, you know, I, I, yes, I think it's interesting to, to make the historical comparisons, but let's keep in mind, Bob Ray took over the premiership. Uh, as we were about to embark on the worst recession since the Great Depression. Uh, if Andrea Horvath does win the election, she would take over at a time where the economy is completely different. We have the lowest unemployment rate in Ontario in 20 years right now. Uh, the, the, you know, the economy's created a million jobs uh, since the end of the Great Recession. Uh, you know, it's just not comparable at all. You know, interest rates are, are not at uh, 12, 13, 14 percent as they were when Bob Ray was premier. They're down in, in you know, very low single digits. So, again, if we're talking ghosts, you know, I'm not sure anybody is too spooked by the ghost of Bob Ray and as, as a reason not to vote NDP. For people who don't know her and, are, again, her looking from outside Ontario, tell, tell us a little bit about her style. You mentioned, of course, that she's run before. Tell us a little bit about her style and what kind of woman she is. Well, the funny thing about Andrea Horvath is that, that you know, here's how Ontario politics have really changed so much. You used to have the kind of liberals and conservatives taking turns being in power and operating mostly out of the center. Center left, center right, it would go back and forth. Now we have a, it's, it's all different. There's no middle in politics anymore in Ontario. Everybody's gone for the edges. And the populist right, Doug Ford is their champion, but Andrea Horvath is similarly a populist and she talks about the folks all the time. But she t takes it from, of course, a left-wing approach. Uh, she has always scored high in terms of personal popularity. Every election she's taken her party into, she's always been the number one choice of uh, the electors in terms of who do you like the most, who would you like to have a beer with, that kind of thing. And she talks in a very folksy fashion. Uh, she's always got a smile on her face. Uh, you know, she was a Hamilton City Councillor before she was in provincial politics, so she actually has a lot of experience at, uh, at uh, more than one level of government. And uh, ironically enough, Doug Ford, I think, helped get elected or helped himself get elected uh, because he said, not only am I going to take votes from unhappy liberals, but I'll take votes from New Democrats as well. And by that, he meant there are now two populist options in Ontario if you don't like the status quo or the establishment. You know, you can go right for Ford or left for Horvath. They're both populists, both uh, approaching uh, Ontario's problems, but just from a completely different policy uh, perspective. Yeah, we saw this in the U.S. election where Donald Trump was also poaching from the Bernie Sanders crowd out on the far left. And the exactly. far left people were poaching some of the Trump people because they were talking about a certain amount of grievance and a certain amount of resentment, et cetera, which leads That's me. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yep, great analogy. Which leads me to my next question. You know, again, from I'm looking at it from outside. Is there the sense of resentment between the sides that I get reading the media and just seeing the particular thing? In other words, have, have, has the schism developed in Ontario now that is almost irreparable? 
Well, I, you know, I, I'd hate to say irreparable because, you know, I, I hope at the end of the day, you know, we have some reason to get up in the morning and be optimistic. But, but let's put it this way. There are fascinating parts of the province where the liberals and new Democrats used to fight over seats all the time because it was basically who's going to be the champion of the left. And those fights are, you know, almost non-existent right now. Uh, the liberals are just so far out of it uh, that some of the great and good close fights now are going to be between conservatives and new Democrats. And you think about that. I mean, from a, if, if you think about how we used to think in the old days, yeah. that's just a leap that, that you know, the, the conventional wisdom tells you it doesn't make sense. How could somebody be, you know, if, they're, if, if they don't want to vote NDP, they might vote conservative. Or if they don't want to vote conservative, they might vote NDP. That just that was a dog that didn't hunt mm. a couple of elections ago. But if you go to the southwestern part of the province, so I'm talking now west of Hamilton, into Brantford, Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, Essex, London, Windsor, if you go into these places, the Liberal Party, Bruce, is dead. It's non-existent. It doesn't even, I mean, it barely registers on public opinion surveys. Why is, uh, why is, that, why is the southwest so against the Liberals when they still seem to have some popularity in other places? Uh, because the Southwest has really borne the, how would I compare it? I guess I'd compare it to like the Pennsylvanias, uh, the, the, like those Northwestern states, the Ohio. Indianas, yeah. you know, the Buffalo, New York, yeah, Ohio, exactly, Kentucky. It's that kind of, um, that's the profile in the province of Ontario. These are places that have really been whacked hard. Their manufacturing base has, has it hasn't disappeared, but it's really taken it on the chin. And as a result, they're in no mood to vote for the Liberals. And they're looking for a populist alternative. And, you know, again, depending on what side of the spectrum you come from, you've got either the NDP or the PCs fighting for seats. And it's interesting. There are going to be some seats in this election. I've looked at some uh, pretty intense polling just today. And there will be seats in this election that will actually flip from the new Democrat, from the PCs to the NDP. Right. Like in, in the old days, in, in normal times, if you're going to if you're going to flip from the NDP You'd go to the liberals because it's not such a vast ideological distance to, to go. Or if you're going to flip from a PC seat, it would go PC to liberal because, again, not a very vast ideological distance to go. But that's changed now. The middle is disappearing. And we're now seeing people jump. If they don't like what the Tories are doing, they're jumping to the NDP because they're seeing themselves as anti-establishment, anti-status quo. And they want a kind of a let's shake it up alternative. And that's in this election, the NDP and the PCs. Is, is there any impact from the fact that we now have an NDP government in BC, an NDP government in, in uh, Alberta? Uh, does, is that having any effect in, in sort of legitimizing the NDP as a party in Ontario, especially that the NDP is in, is in Alberta? Does, does that help people who are looking at it as, as an alternative in Ontario to make that decision? You know, as a politics nerd, I always thought that Thomas Mulcair's um, you know, being in, being on the precipice for a while, anyway, of becoming prime minister of Canada, uh, would have really helped. Um, and, you know, whatever New Democrats were one, running in provincial elections after that, that uh, turned out not to be the case. Uh, you know, uh, and in fact, Notley's election in your province, a lot of people thought, "Wow, here's an indication that people are not afraid to vote NDP." That's really going to help Thomas Mulcair when he runs. Turned out not to be the case. Mm. Uh, you'd love to find, you know, as a, as a political nerd, you'd like to find these sort of uh, ideological or, or philosophical patterns in politics in the country to help explain it better. But I'm I'm really quite persuaded that none of it has any impact at all, or very little. 
I don't imagine that Ontarians consider in the slightest the fact that there are NDP governments in Alberta and British Columbia, mostly because most of what we hear and see and read about them is that they're fighting each other all the time. So, And in fact, I asked Andrea Horvath today uh, at, at her press conference, where do you stand on the whole fight over the, over the, I guess what they used to call the Kinder Morgan pipeline? And she really punted the question. She just walked right down the middle of that. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm only interested in, in making sure that a good environmental assessment is done, which is, you know, trying to have things always. So I don't think I, I, I'm not sure any of that matters. Uh, you know, people are going to make their judgments in this election and the last few days of this campaign. Uh, I think in the ways they always have, they're going to look at the leaders. They're going to say, who's for me? Because they, they, they've, they've written off the liberals. So who's for me? Who can I trust? Who has some ideas that seem to make sense? And they go from there. Yeah. And who, who won't bankrupt their province? Oh, wait, all three are talking about, about spending too much money. I, I think, well, and you know what? We, we should, this, this is actually not a bad moment for me to add that, you know, I, I walk door to door with some of the candidates from time to time just to hear what people are saying at the door. I run into Tories who are very nervous about voting for Doug Ford. I run into liberals who really just have fallen out of love with the premier and can't vote for Kathleen Wynne. I run into people who've never voted NDP in their life and they're thinking about it, but they're not sure if they can. And I run into people who are saying, as a result, I'm not happy with any of those three choices. I may just vote green. Yeah. And we may see the breakthrough for the Green Party in the province of Ontario this time. Bruce, it's, they've never won a seat. They've been running candidates for 30 plus years. Uh, they've run a full slate of candidates, I think, for three or four elections in a row now. And, and just as they did federally, there is a possibility now, provincially, that in the riding of Guelph, which is about uh, I don't know, an hour and a half west of Toronto, uh, Mike Schreiner, who is the very likable, very able leader of the Green Party, he could win the one green seat uh, to give them the breakthrough. Could, could they take any votes from the NDP, some votes in some ridings that would hurt the NDP and, and push it towards the Tories? Because, you know, we're always talking about three-way splits. Now, if it may be a four-way split and with the Liberals sidelined, do the Greens represent any threat to the NDP? I think they represent a threat to all the mainline parties. Uh, you, there are some ridings where the Greens are definitely going to take votes away from the NDP, but there are a lot of ridings where they're going to take votes away from Liberals. Right. And in fact, the, the Green Party has the most fiscally sound costed platform of all the parties. So, you know, if there, if there are Tories out there who are unhappy about who leads their party right now, it wouldn't shock me if some disaffected Tories were to vote Green, because the fact is Mike Schreiner has costed his platform. Uh, he makes a lot of uh, expense promises, as do all the others. But he's, he's the one guy uh, who doesn't uh, plan to run deficits as far as the eye can see. He's got some controversial ideas, though, raising corporate taxes, uh, raising, um, but giving some tax breaks, though, to companies on, the, on payroll taxes, but putting tolls on all our major highways here uh, to raise money that way as well, uh, you know, with disincentive, obviously, for people to drive. So he's got a, he's actually he's probably got the most fiscally prudent platform of, of the four major parties. Finally, uh, let's get back to a political nerd question. There there is a feeling that this election could be the harbinger in two different ways. If the NDP gets elected and then somehow Trudeau hangs on at the federal level and and, and, and not the hangs on in British Columbia, 
Uh, the ND, or, sorry, in Alberta, the NDP could be in a very, very strong position in this country. Likewise, if Doug Ford gets elected and then Alberta flips back to being a conservative uh, province and then uh, Trudeau is beaten by Andrew Scheer, we could all of a sudden have a big move towards the conservatives. So this is kind of like, you know, there's a parade coming down the street and the Ontario float is the biggest, most expensive and really kind of dramatic one. And it's going to tell us something, I think, about where we're going to go and in, in, in terms of the national status. Uh, there's no question about that. I think that's a great metaphor, incidentally, a, a really good way to put it. And, and you know, sometimes these things are no more complicated than the ins are in, the outs are out, the wheel turns, now the outs come in and the ins come out. Yeah. Um, you know, we tend to sometimes overthink these things. But the reality is, I remember 30 years ago, Bruce, when David Peterson uh, became the premier of Ontario in 1985. He was the only liberal government in the whole country, right? It was Brian Mulroney as a, a progressive conservative government nationally. He had tons of Tory governments provincially. He had no liberal government anywhere in the country. Uh, Peterson was the only one. And then we've seen over time. Now, there, there got to be a time where we had liberal government in Quebec, we had liberal government in Ontario, we had federal liberal government, of course, liberal governments in the Maritimes, liberal government in British Columbia. You know, th th these things come in waves. And you're quite right that if, if Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives win this election in Ontario, it will certainly be a blow uh, to Justin Trudeau's and Catherine McKenna, the environment minister's plans for a carbon tax or dealing with climate change in the way that they have chosen to deal with it. Uh, again, if Jason Kenney comes in, that's another ally for the cause. Saskatchewan and Manitoba are already allies for that cause. Um, it, you're right. It, it could usher in a whole new way of doing politics in the country. One of the things that that, that has I think almost always been a truism of Ontario politics, and the last few years have been a real anomaly, and that is whatever party's in power in Ottawa, Ontarians tend to choose the opposite party at Queen's Park. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way almost every election in post-war history. You know, think of, the, think of the tandems that were in place. You know, when Pierre Trudeau was in Ottawa, Bill Davis was in Ontario, okay? And, and, and so it went. Uh, you can go back further and further, and almost always, whatever party's in power in Ottawa, it's the opposite party at Queen's Park. Uh, as soon as Justin Trudeau won the federal election back in 2015, I thought to myself, it's going to be harder now for Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals uh, to get reelected, because Ontarians, as a rule, don't like to put the same party in power in both places. And the fact is, I know when, when Stephen Harper won his majority government in 2011, uh, in the early part of that year, the Ontario Liberals, who were incredibly unpopular at the time and looked headed for defeat, thought to themselves, there's our opening. And they ran hard against Harper and Dalton McGuinty, who was the premier of the day, saw his polling numbers start to rise, running against the federal government. And, of course, he won his third election in a row, which no liberal premier in this province had done in 129 years. Mm. So I think these things, that's, that's either one hell of a coincidence or I think there actually is some kind of subconscious trend there. Uh, which which turns out to be the case, election after election after election. Yeah, people people could be a little bit fickle. Just just as a, as a side issue, uh, seeing as how it's becoming such a big thing in terms of the NAFTA discussions, was there any discussion in the Ontario provincial election about supply side management? No, hasn't been an issue at all. And you know, we, I guess we just don't quite have the cheese uh, and dairy industry of Quebec here. It's it's just it. There, there have been lots of issues raised in this campaign, but that just really hasn't been one. Now, the, the, you know, the premier's numbers, I've actually seen polling, which, I mean, it's not enough to help her at the end of the day, but her polling numbers have improved, her personal numbers have improved because of the tariffs that Trump has imposed on steel 
And I mean, obviously, we've got a you know huge and important steel manufacturing base here in the province of Ontario uh, in places like Sault Ste. Marie and Hamilton. Uh, these industries are a big deal, uh, not as big as they once were, of course, but still employ thousands of people. And Kathleen Wynne has stood up to Trump in the kind of way that has made Ontarians kind of, you know, proud to see her fighting that fight. And so, uh, you know, it's not going to help her win the election, but um, but her personal uh, numbers have gone up a little bit as a result of that. To say nothing of the automobile industry in Ontario, too, which is also part of this. But listen, I can't, we can't talk yeah. all day. We could try, but we can't talk all day. <laughs> Steve, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Uh, just uh, your, your sense right now where things stand. Uh, is the polling reflective of what you what it to be? Uh, what you think is your understanding of the of the situation? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, everybody's got slight methodological differences in the way they poll. I think we're using the best pollster out there on our program on the agenda on TVO. Um, and uh, we have a pollster called Advanced Symbolics, which uses artificial intelligence to supplement their mainline polling. And the advantage of that is instead of just polling 1,500 people a night and doing rolling polls, they're polling 100,000 people a night in all 124 ridings. And at the moment, they're showing a conservative majority government. Um, obviously, with you know the election's not till the 7th of June. Something big could happen to change that, uh, but absent something sort of cataclysmic happening to change the dynamic, that's where we are right now. Mm. It's going to be fascinating uh, for all of us, in, in well, for those of you inside Ontario and for those of us outside watching. Uh, a lot uh, hinges on Ontario and a lot hinges on what happens to the economy in Ontario. And thus we will be watching with uh, bated breath on June the 7th. And I know you'll be doing a great job on TV Ontario as you anchor. I believe you're anchoring that night, aren't you? I sure am. We'll, we'll have a four-hour program on starting at 8 o'clock, which is 6 o'clock your time. And I would invite all of your listeners uh, to check us out because you can get our program either on our Facebook page, which is, uh, you know, just look for The Agenda with Steve Pakin on Facebook or Twitter.com slash The Agenda. They can watch they can watch a live stream of our program uh, on social media. We're on at eight o'clock and we're off the air uh, after the last speeches are done. I will be there. I will be watching as always. And I'm, I know you'll do a great job. Steve, as always, thanks very much. Pleasure, Bruce. Great talking to you again. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan, our guest this episode, with Steve Pakin, the award-winning host of The Agenda on TV Ontario and, of course, author of a number of books on Ontario politics. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can access my columns, podcasts, and poetry on the website. I'm also appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Radio Channel 167 Canada Talks. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Yep,